0: Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hello there, out in radio land. Let me ask you, are you working on something big Do you have high hopes for a project? Maybe you're trying to get a raise at work or a promotion. Maybe you're launching a business, trying to make one succeed. Or maybe it's just that you want your children to become everything they're capable of becoming. Well, what will you do if your plans blow up in your face? You get that call, Sorry, we're going with a different vendor. Or your boss leaves the company and you just don't have the same chemistry with the replacement. Interest rates go up, or the price of lumber, or the price of black sea grain. Suddenly your business plan doesn't work anymore. Or maybe your kids start hanging out with the wrong crowd. Your son tells you, I don't want to read Plutarch's Lives anymore. I have to go find myself. These are hard things, friends. Terrible, hard things. How do we deal with them? How do we regroup? Well, today, let's take a look at Lysander. Who of us has had higher hopes than that? This is Alex Petkus. You're listening to The Cost of Glory. We study the lives of great men here, men who have accomplished great things, and also men who have failed bigly, not perfect men. But all the same, it takes great character to do anything worth telling a story for the ages about. And the point, as always, is to bring out the greatness in ourselves. It's there, Trust me, you are created in the image of God. Chances are you haven't even scratched the surface. And before we get to the meat of this, a quick announcement. I want to acknowledge a few books that have helped me put Lysander's life together. First, Paul Cartledge's book, Agesilaus. Also, Peter Krentz's book on the 30 at Athens. Donald Kagan's The Peloponnesian War has been helpful too. Also in the realm of fiction, Stephen Pressfield's The Tides of War, which is about Alcibiades, more or less. And also another one of our Cost of Glory listeners writes historical novels on this period. His name is Martin Sulev. I just found out about this book series of his towards the end of making the Lysander series. But check out Martin's series, Demon of Athens, and you can find those books on Amazon. Book two in the series is called God of Sparta. And uh, can you tell by the name... It features, as a villain, Lysander of Sparta. God of Sparta, it's called. Love it. So I just got copies in the mail. Thanks, Martin. And, uh, and thanks for being a fan, too. So there are some options for you if you want to go deeper. Now then, some analysis and takeaways. Well, after Lysander died in 394 at Haliartus, King Agesilaus was forced to end his great Persian campaign, his Persian expedition, early because a major war was obviously threatening back home on the mainland. And that war, which was beginning really with Lysander's campaign in Boeotia, it ended up picking up steam a year or so later, when the Corinthians joined in on the side of Thebes and Athens, and all three of the other major Greek mainland powers soon were united in a war against Sparta. The war was called the Corinthian War, and it lasted several years and ended in 387 BC. And it's a story that we'll tell later when we get to the biography of Agesilaus, coming soon. Well, in the, in the wake of all of this, Thebes rose up to become the major antagonist to Sparta over the next generation. Under the leadership of Pelopidas and Epaminondas, Thebes eventually defeated the Spartans in a famous land battle, the Battle of Leuctra, in 371. Pelopidas and Epaminondas are also subjects of Plutarch biographies. Sadly, the one on Epaminondas is lost, but the Pelopidas one exists, and we'll we'll do him sometime. Amazing story. But in a way, Lysander's aggressive and uncompromising attitude toward Thebes in his life, it was really proven to be wise. And Well, the gods didn't ultimately elect Sparta as their Greek-speaking instrument to topple the Persians with. They left that to the Macedonians, to King Philip, and to his son, Alexander the Great. And that great campaign began only about 60 years after Lysander died. But Lysander and Agesilaus were arguably the first leaders to put together a credible plan to try it. And it failed for a number of reasons. And surely the fact that Lysander was not ultimately a part of the campaign was a factor here. So partly it was Agesilaus to blame for demoting his friend, but partly it was the constitution of Sparta itself that gave Agesilaus as king the power to do that. And Sparta was always a regional power in the Peloponnese. It would go to war with its relatively small neighbors competing for supremacy among peers on the Greek mainland. But Lysander saw that there are times in history when great moves are possible, when the world lets its guard down. And at the end of the Peloponnesian War, he seems to have seen earlier than most that the lesson of the past 30 or maybe even 70 years or maybe even 100 years, it was that maintaining a so-called balance of power among the independent Greek city-states was a recipe for nearly endless war. And this is what the Romans thought of Greek history as well. But Lysander judged, even then perhaps, that what was inevitable was that one city, one people, and one power should rule them all. And he thought it must be Sparta. And you don't get a chance to put that kind of plan into action very often. Generations might go by before such an opportunity would open up like that again. If that was what he was thinking, he was correct. But the Spartan state was really not designed well for large-scale empire. It was foreign to their ethos in a number of ways, to deprive all the Greeks of their liberty. Even though, paradoxically, they did keep a local subject population in a cruel state of serfdom, the Helots, And so Lysander pushed his agenda at the end of the war, and he persuaded the Spartans to pursue an imperialist program with deckarchies and harmosts, but his rivals in the state used Sparta's checks and balances to undermine Lysander personally, and they used the very Spartan ethos of restraint in foreign policy to undermine Lysander's Sparta-first political program. And Lysander then tried to revolutionized the Spartan political system, the kingship. He wasn't averse to using some trickery there, or for that matter, to use it in other spheres of his career. As Plutarch commented, quote, Lysander, who was a clever quibbler and given to employing cunning deceptions to further most of his designs, counted justice as mere expediency and honor as that which is advantageous, he said that the truth is better than falsehood, but that the worth and value of either is determined by the use to which it is put, quote. And Lysander was also reported to have said, you should trick children with dice and men with oaths. And Lysander could always figure out a way to argue that the purpose to which he was putting both his truths and his falsehoods was the greater glory of Sparta. And many Greeks objected that it was hard to distinguish the greater glory of Sparta from the greater glory of Lysander. But all the same, very unlike his parallel counterpart, Sulla, Lysander refused to use deadly force to push his agenda at home at Sparta. He aimed to persuade the Spartans in one way or another. And whenever he failed, he didn't lash out resentfully, He moved on to different projects. No chance to change the kingship? Okay, let's get Agesilaus made king against opposition. And when Agesilaus turns on him, he gives up trying to lead the Asian expedition. And when he's discharged from his command there, he finds another project to pursue in Sparta's interests, leading a war that was brewing with Thebes. Now, because of his coldness and his cunning, Lysander became an object of terror and resentment to many Greeks who wrote about him, and it wasn't just their personal feelings guiding them. In fact, most of our sources, Plutarch included, largely reflect the pro-Athenian and even pro-Theban political perspective on Greek history of Lysander's time and on Lysander's own character. And this is really a weakness as serious as any that you might find in the Spartan Constitution, that it failed to produce men who would tell their side of history to posterity. When we do have tales of Spartan virtue, it's usually by chance a product of outsiders, like Herodotus telling the story of the 300 at Thermopylae, or Xenophon's writings on Agesilaus. But the point that we were kind of getting to earlier stands, namely, if you are generally honest and just with your countrymen, but nonetheless dishonest and savage with your enemies, you will seriously jeopardize your legacy. And that's true even if you do have propagandists who can later try to sweep your faults under the rug. All the same though, to the Spartans, Lysander was a hero and his loss was crushing. He was a patriot through and through. He exemplified their city's virtues. As evidence, among other things, you could point to the fact that Lysander's death basically ended King Pausanias' career, because he was felt to be at fault. And there are many other lessons that you can take from Lysander's life, and we'll return to this topic again when we get to the comparison between him and Sulla. You could talk about the importance of timing and understanding your enemy's psychology when you were executing bold strategies, as we saw in the case of his defeat of the Athenians at Notion and Potomy. But then again, people have commented that he forgot all his generalship in being defeated by the Thebans at the walls of Haliartus in an engagement where he should have simply waited for Pausanias to arrive with the full Spartan army. And it is really strange, his death, but maybe he had information that we didn't. Then you could point to other strategic and political lessons learned from installing the 30 at Athens and the Decarchies, and what was at stake in those decisions— and if you have any other thoughts or reflections on Lysander, you could write to me, Alex at ancientlifecoach.com or reach out on social media. But the overwhelming lesson that I suggest to you in emulating Lysander's virtues is to never stop fighting for the cause that gives your life meaning. For Lysander, that was Sparta. Lysander drew his power, his stunning, savage effectiveness from absolute clarity about what was important to him. For you, it's something else. Have you identified it? If not, that's the first thing you need to do. Make sure it's good, something lasting. And if you have identified it, what are you doing to further it? What's in the way? Have you faced setbacks? You might take out a pen and paper, do a post-mortem, figure out how you're going to get yourself back in the game, like Lysander did, time and time again. Your cause needs you, and we need you. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.